Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please remain standing, Michelle Scott. Uh, we're going to do something a little traditional this morning. In ancient times, when the ancient scriptures were read, people were so in love with the Word of God that they stood. And it wasn't just some ritual, but they actually loved it. They actually they set up, they paid attention, and they stood to their feet. And it was more of a, I think it was more of a posture of their heart. They're like leaning into what the Father has to say, because that's all they had. And it was just a few people that had Holy Spirit friends, and that was kings, prophets, priests. But now we all have the Spirit of God. But I think it's good every now and then to get up on our tiptoes and lean into what the Father's saying, don't you? So I'm going to read you. I'm taking liberty this morning. Uh, a few more of those amens would be really appreciated during the conversation. Um, and a welcome to Ian from Bangor Vineyard, part of the family. We are a wider family. Ian was playing keys this morning. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, Deborah. Uh, things happen on the way to church. People fall in, people fall out. This is his wife, Deborah, sitting at the other side of the room. But uh, there would be a prayer ministry team straight after our talk, and so hopefully things will work out for you on the way home. It would be really awkward if they were having a fight, wouldn't it? Okay, I'm indulgent, being a bit indulgent this morning, because I want to read one of my favorite stories. You've heard it loads of times, but don't read it in your mind, or don't hear it with familiarity, don't let it breed contempt in your heart. Allow your imagination to go into the story this morning, as if you're hearing Jesus say it for the first time. So maybe just close your eyes or something and try and engage with the atmosphere of what's happening in that time. Here we go. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of, as one of the citizens of that country who sent him into feeds to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And it's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these years, all these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never 
give me anything, not even a goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when a son came, this son came, he's devoured your property with prostitutes and, killed a fatty, and you've killed a fatty calf for him. He said to him, son, you're always with me. And all of that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate, to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Familiar story again. You've heard it many times. And we get filled with warm emotion when we hear it. But those who heard it for the first time, they didn't feel warm or fuzzy about it. In fact, they were astounded and offended. Okay? They're astounded and offended. It's not a sentimental story to those listening in. What Jesus is doing here is some listeners listening to his conversations. If you ever read the story of Jesus, the books of the gospel, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find when Jesus is having a conversation, there's listeners. There's people eavesdropping. There's people, they've seen miracles, they've been fed, they've had heard rumors that this man cleanses people, that he drives out demons, that people are actually healed, that he does signs and wonders. And so they naturally are inclined to this man called Jesus, so they lean in to his every word, his conversation. So they know that Jesus is having a conversation here. Do you ever do that in the supermarket? When you're, li- no? When you're at a till and you just listen in to somebody else's conversation to find out what's going on? No? No, that's good. Don't do that. And so, this is what happens. And there are always, there are always people listening. In. But here's the thing. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. There's two ways to approach God. There's two figures. There's two conversations. There's two people groups. There's two ways to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's two ways to engage with Jesus. And in this particular story, both are wrong. And there's one way back. So Luke has two people, two groups of people. This is where the story picks up. There's two groups of people. There's the, there's the sinners. There's, there's the, those who have tax collectors, prostitutes, those who have left the traditional faith, those who have maybe never grown up in the traditional faith, especially Samaritans, those who are outside the story of God. And then we have the elder, the son. He's like the rules are hot, but relationship is cold. Have you got me? Two people are listening to Jesus, real life, real happening, real time. They're both listening to Jesus. And so those are the two groups of people that are represented. I don't know about you, but as I read the Gospels, there's always an individual group that, is, that are around on the ages, and that's those who are outside the story of God. But this is what the Gospels tell me. This is what the story of Jesus tells me. Here's the big overarching truth that outsiders get in. And here's the remarkable thing. Outsiders usually come first. This is, this is a startling fact. This is what Jesus of Nazareth said one time. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. I'm not lying. I'm not kidding you, okay? He said, tax collectors, this is very offensive. Can you imagine that you kept all the laws, that you studied hard, that you grew up in the right way, what you thought was the right way, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along. Many people start to follow him. There's a lot of allegiance. He's crowds, thousands upon thousands of people. And then one day you're sitting and you overhear him say this, I tell you the truth. Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Ouch. That's pretty, pretty heavy, right? So here's how the story kicks off. Two, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're gathered around them. But the Pharisees, it says in the scriptures, it says the Pharisees and the teacher of the Lord, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
his reputation. Again, that's why they said that he was a glutton and a drunkard, because he was always eating. He was either going to a meal, coming back from a meal. This is the life of Jesus, or he was talking about food, right? So this is why food is very primary to relationship and friendship with God. The table is not just a place to get nourishment and fuel to go about a day's work. The table is a place of friendship. It's a place of association. So who you sit with, you associate with. Can you see it? So they've caught on that Jesus is associating with these people. They're absolutely flabbergasted, and they begin to mutter. They begin to say things. He welcomes sinners. What kind of people come to his meetings, right? I'm thinking in our culture today, there would be the grumbling and the muttering. And maybe people would say something like this here in our culture, because they think if people show up that are not like Jesus into an environment where Jesus is welcomed and talked about, they think that maybe they're telling the things that people want to hear. Maybe they're watering down the gospel. Maybe they're just tickling their ears. But that's not who Jesus Christ is. He's quite radical in every, in every part of his life, whether it's his generosity, his, his setting people on the right path. He's actually radical to both sides of the story. So the prodigal really is a story of a family being torn apart. It really is. It says this, that, it's an assault. If you want to think about it this way, it's an assault on the family. So think about it this way. Jesus, there's, Jesus continues the story, verse 11, 12. Let me read it. There was a man who had two sons, father, two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divides his property, the scripture tells us, uh, between them and the way they go. Now, just to uh, make it very clear, because sometimes people get weird and wacky with these stories. Can I just tell you something? This is just a story. It's fictional. I've heard weird and wonderful stories of people then telling me what happened after they went into the party. Here's where the story ends, right? There is no after party. The story ends. Jesus is telling the story. The story ends here. So it's fictional. It's like watching a movie, but he's much to teach us, much to teach us. So what's happening here is that the younger son request, if you're listening to Jesus telling the story, Especially if you're a Pharisee, right? Or a Sadducee, or if you're part of the law, one of those people that are connected with that society. You're hearing this story, and when you hear that this young man asked Jesus, or asked, sorry, the father, trying to get back into the story, when he asked the father to give him his share of the property, it's kind of awkward. It's stunning. It's so offensive. It's like being in a conversation. You're listening to it, and you're thinking, oh, no, did he really say that? Because we're just thinking he wants some money early and he wants to go. But here's the thing. Kenneth Bailey, he writes this. He says, in Middle Eastern culture, to ask for the inheritance while the father's alive is to wish him dead. Strong, isn't it? It's like he's saying, I wish you were dead. You are dead to me. Give me my stuff. You might as well be dead to me. And so his request is a disgrace to the family name. That's why the family is the first people that are assaulted here and ripped apart. Extraordinary disrespect for the father. And so if you were there this time, you're hearing the religious leaders, they must be thinking, yes, Jesus, let them have it. They're like, this is brilliant. This is what these prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners need to hear, right? They're like, they need to, I'm going to get the tape for somebody that's not here. Because <laughs> they had tapes in those days, right? So like, somebody needs to hear this. I wish like Jacob was here. He would have loved this, you know. I wish I know somebody needs to hear this story. So, there's this economic blow also. 
since the father would have to sell part of his estate in short Again, the selling part of the estate meant that they were going to struggle because the father's still alive and there's still more people there, less money. Are you with me? So I'm just really engaging in the story, even though it's fictional. So he says to them, okay, have it. So in short, he rips the family apart. So it's relational, it's economic, it's an act of violence against the family's integrity. Everybody's going to hear that in that culture. Why would the younger son make such a request? You might ask, I'm going to give you the answer. The younger son may have lived with his father, may even have obeyed his father, younger son, but he never really loved the father. He loves stuff and things. He loves stuff and things. And the thing he loved ultimately was the father's things, not his father. His heart was set on his wealth, on his comfort, on his freedom, on his status, and the things that wealth brings us, right? Can you engage in this? Is this hard for us in the 21st century to wrap our minds around? That we would actually be caught up in wealth and... and, and and I know you would, Jesus sometimes uses the extreme of the story to make the point, but this is actually such, such helpful conversation to the 21st century. We are so indulged in consumerism and in our allegiance to other things. So the crossroads for all of us, and in this story particularly, in the moment that choice leads us to make a decision, it's give me it, and I'm out of here. The choice is set in the heart. Then... And then things happen. And then things happen. We make choices in our hearts all the time. Quietly make things in our heart. We say, Don't we? Quietly. I've done it. You've done it. We've sinned in our hearts. We make choices. We've quietly done it. We make the choice in our heart. And then our heart's set. And then we end up doing stuff. That's why people say to me, you know, I can't believe that that couple had an affair. I, can't, I never saw it coming. I'll tell you why it happened in the heart first. It wasn't just something that happened overnight. This didn't wake up some morning and say, you know what, I'm done with this marriage. It happened in the heart first. It was set, and then the choices and the decisions and actions followed. That's how life works for all of us. So he's, uh, the thing he loved was ultimately the father's stuff. That's the crossroads. His father was just a means to an end. However, his patience was over. He knew the request would be like a knife to the heart, but he obviously didn't care. So, so that's that. Here's the older son's side of the story. And you don't need a PhD in philosophy or psychology to realize that when the son returns, it's the greatest day of the father's life. When he shows up, the son was gone. The language of the scripture says, found and dead. Or sorry, lost and found, found and alive. So he's... He's lost, he's found, he's, he's dead to him, now he's well. So here's the thing about the economic again, this is how it rips up the families and how it destroys things. It's, do you know how many people a calf would have fed in those days? Do you want to have a guess just to engage everybody? 50 close? Any other takers? 45 a little higher? Close? I just love the competitiveness. I could keep this going all day. She's like 67. 75, Sharon, relax. <laughs> she's still oh, She's still won. Okay, I'm looking for a prize, but we'll get to someone there. 75 to 100 people, and meat was a real treat. Meat was a real treat. It was a, it was a delicacy, and it's no small party, okay? This is no small party. So people listening to this are thinking, this is a bit extravagant. Yet the end, the older son, he's furious with the father. He, he humiliates him by refusing to go in, and that's where the story ends. 
So again, the family's integrity, and the bigger point is that the father's heart is under assault. The father's heart's under assault. This time by the elder brother, and the elder brother objects to the expense of what the father is doing. Have you ever done that? It's very hard to, for you guys to concentrate this morning because I'm working really hard. I'm a little charismatic. I'm raising my voice. I'm trying everything in my power to keep your attention this morning. How are we doing? Are you with me? Great. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen somebody come back just, who's just a real menace in life? Maybe somebody you grew up with in school and years later, like you're sitting around a table or a pub or a club or a coffee place and you hear that they've got saved and your immediate reaction is, really? They? Them? It's like, or you've grown up with somebody and all of a sudden you've known all the stuff they've done and they got, they met Jesus, they fell in love with Jesus right away and their life's totally freed and you're thinking, could they not just repent just for another week or a month older? Could they, you know, like, they're just full of joy. And do you ever, no, just me? I'm such a bad pastor, aren't I? You are such holy people. Your hearts are contrite and pure. Blessed are you among people. It's like we, sometimes the extravagance of the father overwhelms me. And then I look in the mirror and I say, oh, I get it. So he shows them, he shows that he's obeying the father, right? This is the older son again, the elder brother, to get the things, not because he loves him since he's willing to put him to shame, but the older brother, he's also into the stuff. He's also into the things. He's, it's called elder brother idolatry. Elder brother idolatry. You can be obeying the father, doing what needs done, looks right in the outside, but the heart is dead in the inside. The only thing that's set on is the father's things, not the father. I'm really concerned about Western Christianity at the minute. I, I know the church is thriving and growing, but we have become so commercialized, it's really, really serious. And we've bought into consumerism spirituality. We've bought into the, you know, we've bought into a gospel that says that I've got to be careful. We've bought into a gospel that says you get God, you get his stuff. You get God, you get the things. You want, you want a vibrant social life, then buy into Christianity. If you want things to go well for you, then buy into Christianity. What if it never offered you that? What if, it, what if the only thing you were offered was King Jesus and his love and affection? Would that still grab your heart and your attention? Yeah? Because we have bought into this Christianity that is, like, here's the thing. The other side of the story is true, that when you get God, you get lift right? It's just natural. That's why Jeremiah 29 tells us if the, if, the, if the community prospers, you pray for it. Because if it prospers and does well, then everything lifts. All of society lifts. Your social well-being, your economic well-being, the political environment, the health and social care, uh, care for the elderly. Everything lifts. Everything is good. And so to live a life according to the ancient scriptures, I guarantee you that everything will lift in the community. But we're not after the lift. We're after him. And his heart. And so there's this guy, he was really cool back in the day. Can I just say there's bad boy idolatry and good boy idolatry? Just one's seen and the other's not. One's well masked. There's bad boy idolatry and there's good boy idolatry. Both break up community and communion with the Father. Both break up community and communion with the Father. Have you ever heard a guy of Augustine? Augustine? 
Augustine, he wrote the book called Confessions. I read his biography one time, totally changed my life, quite radical. Total narcissist at the start of his life, love woman, love food. Um, and then he fell in love with, with Jesus, God. And then he talked, his, his affection totally changed. He went all out for God. Now, the guy was still kind of mixed up as they were in those times. I mean, wouldn't agree with everything that they did in those days, you know. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Everybody's walking around toothless and blind. Uh, he talked about disordered loves. Basically, a disordered love is that when you make a good thing and do an ultimate thing. Right? You make a good thing and do an ultimate thing. There's a lot of good things in there, but when we align our hearts, when they get our allegiance, you may be noticing quite... Um, yeah, it may be very obvious to you that over the last few weeks I've been talking a lot about allegiance. Things that get our hearts, like, you know, I, I, I'm going to maybe step on toes this morning, so put on your grace hat. I, I'm kind of flabbergasted this week when I look at the church in America, especially around the 4th of July, and just some of the language that it uses. Like flag and allegiance and country, and then God gets, he's, he's down here somewhere. Yeah, we need to be careful about things like that. Right? I'm just saying. He's, he gets our heart. He gets our allegiance. He's, he's right up there. He's right up there. And sometimes good things look like godly things, but they're not godly things when they become the ultimate thing. They're the small god or the, the idol in our hearts. Guys, that can be anything. It doesn't have to be flags and country. It could be your family, your career. Your pursuit of happiness. How much that grabs your heart and your attention. So what happens is the ultimate thing, the good thing becomes the ultimate thing. Relationship, people, disordered love, a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. You do this and it will starve you emotionally and it will enslave you and it will divide your allegiance to Christ Jesus and his kingdom. That's why God, the Bible's not complicated. Somebody said to me this week, I love it when non-Christians quote me scriptures, don't they? Do you love that? And then they say, isn't that right, Jason? And then sometimes you have to say no. Because <laughs> sometimes they just say, you know, that godliness, cleanliness is next to godliness. Isn't that right, Jason? No. It's not in the scriptures. Uh, or, or they said to me this week, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, money is the root of all evil, isn't it, Jason? No. The love of money is. Uh, and so things, it's not about money. It's not about flags. It's not about nationhood. It's not about family and pursuit of happiness. It's not about that. It's about allegiance and it becomes where they become divided. So the first thing is the assault in the family. You doing okay? Good, good, good. I have four minutes to finish up here because Ruth Walker is keeping time. It might not happen. I'm just saying there. If anybody's betting on it, I would uh, bank out now if you do get that option. Um, so the younger son's request to the father would have shocked Jesus' listeners. We talked about that. But the father's response is even more remarkable. If you're reading ancient scripture, verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. It's the start of everything. Get up, go back to God. Whatever you're at in life, get up, go back to God. Get up, go back to God. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Beautiful story. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. He wasn't wearing a pair of Nikes and a pair of shorts, by the way. This was hugely, hugely humiliating for that culture. An old man never runs, young men do run. He's wearing like a skirt thing, so he's pulling up a skirt and he's running in sandals. And anybody hearing the story saying, oh, really? 
you're an embarrassment. You know? Dad's over 40. Think of it when you come into your teenage son's party. That's the moment. That's the moment. I've been there. I've had taps from upstairs, from bedroom floor. My wife called me, getting rather excited. Go upstairs. Sorry, I forgot kids are in the room. To tell me, Jason, get out of the room. When the boy's friends are around. Okay, too much information. Stay on track. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robes, put it on, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it. And remember, 75 to 100 people, quite a party. Let's have a feast, let's celebrate. For the son of mine is dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I love it. Simple but true. They began to celebrate. This is a patriarch, patriarchal, uh, help me somebody say it, patriarchal society in which you're required to show difference and reverence towards those who are older and above you, right? Uh, there was no nursing homes in those days, right? So guess who looks after the elderly? The family. You go to other cultures and traditions, uh, especially in India, you'll find the grandmother living with the family and they're taking care of their needs, all their parts of the east and you'll find a lot in our culture. Our culture's shifted considerably. I'm not here to talk or comment on that. Each circumstance is different. Each family is different. But that's the culture in that time. So it's a kind of contempt and insolence would have ordinarily met, this would have ordinarily met with outrage. Like this would have met with outrage. The listeners would expect the father to explode in wrath. So in one moment you had the Pharisees saying to Jesus, give it to the sinners. And now you have the sinners going, ooh. Wow, give it to the Pharisees. <laughs> it's like, don't you love it when Scripture backs up your belief system? Yeah, don't do it. Don't use it. It's not a debating book. It's a devotional book. So the listeners, they expect the Father to explode in wrath, and, and they're, they're probably waiting. You know, on one side, the, the Pharisees are probably waiting, oh, what's going to happen next? And then they find this story out, and they're like, so got it, so embarrassed, actually. They're waiting for the son to drive, the, be driven out with blows and servants to come and chase the son. But that doesn't happen. Instead, the property is divided between them. And, and we need to put ourselves in this historical context again. In those days, most of a family's wealth was their land and their property. It was part of their identity. Okay, so the, probably the, it's probably quite similar. You know why farmers, not to cause offense because I'm not a farmer. I know one. And... Uh, I was fascinated one time in my house. I thought this was brilliant. A tractor went past. Somebody from church vineyard was in our house, and they said, that's New Holland. And I thought, well, that's quite prophetic. Like, they know the difference between a new tractor and an old tractor. <laughs> it's a true story. So it's a part of their identity. So to sell up the land in order to, to liquidate it and give the younger son a share... This is just, this is huge. This is huge. And the word for it, it's, it's, the Greek word is like a farmer word. It's called bios. B-I-O-S. And it means, literally means life. Their life is divided up. 
So again, those listening in, hearing all this, hearing about the, the party, but actually listening to the father actually giving in to the son, dividing up his life, his property, his identity, his good name and his status in the presence of the two sons, this is, this is huge. So the older son, anybody else in the community thought the father was being foolish to give away what the younger son was given. Sometimes God looks foolish. He looks foolish with his mercy. He looks foolish with his grace. Sometimes I think, you probably think it's quite offensive. I think sometimes God looks very vulnerable. Because he pours out his love and extravagance and mercy and his kindness. And he gives this beautiful thing called the kingdom. And the kingdom is huge, right? Because when, when you listen to the ancient scriptures, when you hear the word kingdom, it talks about it as the pearl of great price. It talks about it as property, as land, as life. It talks about that. And yet he gives it to mere mortals, broken people that are fickle sometimes, like me and you. And that's why I think God's gracious and vulnerable. But looking back now, we know better. Because had the father become embittered? Had he drove the son out with wrath? Restoration would never be possible. And God's goal for humanity is always restoration. It's always extravagant love for the sake of restoration. It's always extravagant mercy for the sake of restoration. That's why we as a church of Jesus Christ need to take a step always beyond convenience, look extravagant, look foolish in our community, to take a step towards those who are outside the kingdom with the extravagant love of Jesus Christ. Because we know that might look foolish, we might get ridiculed, they might be saying they even get into the vineyard, they must be telling them things they love to hear. That's why we do that. We do that. We don't tell people stuff they want to hear. We tell them the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The reason why we do that, because we believe that reconciliation is always possible. Do you? Some of us. What's the problem? So what, what difference does this make for us now? And I'm coming to an end. It means this, guys. This is what this story means for us. First of all, it means whether we are irreligious, freewheeling, younger brother types, or moral, religious, cult relation types. We have this problem, what Augustine calls the disordered love. All of us do. From time to time, we have this disordered love. We have idols in our heart. Let me try and make it work for you here, just to try and arouse your curiosity and try and even your emotions, how you would feel this morning. Imagine a wife and husband, right? A husband who spends hours with another woman talking about all his and her problems. Can you imagine it? Say, in the workplace. You know, sits down, tea break. Says to this other woman, my, my wife's really not. She's not that helpful at times. She's always giving off to me about going out on a Thursday night. And she, she's always saying, are you cleaning that house together again? And, <laughs> and things like that. Uh, and then he talks and talks about, in fact, they say, well, we should, the next business trip, we should put our names down for it. We should go together. So the next business trip comes up, he volunteers him and the other woman and they go on the business trip because it's all quite legitimate, isn't it? So he goes and goes on the business trip and, he, and then he comes back and 
says to his wife, we the best business trip ever. And he talks excessively and intensively about this other woman. Right? So the wife naturally confronts him and says, what's the story here? And the husband says, what's the problem? What's the problem? I married you, didn't I? Right? He's legally married. Did marry her, right? He's, his job, it's a high-profile job, it gives him luxuries to travel, but it also gives him the money to pay the mortgage. So he's never missed a mortgage payment in his puff. What's the problem? Married you, I pay the mortgage. What's the problem? Oh, I even take out the bins. I do the stuff around the house, don't I? And if someone asks me, I'm going to say that, yeah, you're my wife. If somebody says to me, are you in relationship with this woman? Are you connected to this woman? I'm not going to hide the fact that you're my wife. I am married to you. So what's the problem? The wife will say rightly, she might say something like this here. I'd imagine she'd say a lot more, but I'm going to keep it PC this morning for the sake of children in the room. I would imagine the wife might say, and rightly so, that someone else has captured your heart and your imagination. Right? You're thinking, heck, right, she would. So that, to have faith in God is more than an intellectual belief. It's more than signing to a set of rules and regulations. It's way more than that. It's to have allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. Did you know, here's the thing, and we're going to finish up, we're going to finish up with worship, and we're going to all engage in a minute, kids and all. Do you know what the opposite of faith is not doubt? But here's what I'm discovering. It's actually offense. It's offense. See, in, a, in, in that culture, trust is a beautiful thing, and it's an important thing. So what am I saying? Like, See, allegiance and trust goes hand in hand. The opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's offense. See, I can have doubt in God, right? I can have doubt in God, but I can still lean my life into him and trust his goodness and his kindness. I may not perceive everything. I may not understand everything. I may have some doubts about some things, but I am not going to cause him offense and say, you know what? No chance you won't deliver. You're not getting my allegiance. You know what? It may be like Diane comments. I'll just pick on you for the sake of it. It might be that Diane says, you know, I'm going to feed everybody in this place today. It's something that she would do, right? And you might have doubt about that. Are you with me? You might doubt, oh, there's no way. This, what time is it? 5 to, 5 to 12. It might be that she's thinking that now at 5 to 12 that uh, we're thinking, I wish the supermarket's not even open to one unless she goes to, you know, and we, we can have all that doubt. But if we go up there and say, you know what, Dan, you're lying. You're misleading people. You're, you're, you, you, I don't believe you. You can't. See, that's, that's, that would cause her heart offense, and quite rightly so. So I can doubt that she's able to do it, but I'm not going to offend her. And that is what it's like with having our lives lined up to the gospel and to the alignment of loving Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Guys, the opposite of faith is not doubt. If you don't have doubt, I might say that you might be a little insane. It's okay to have doubt, okay? But do not cause offense. 
to the one who gave himself for you and the one who's called you into that. Elder brother, here's where it goes. This is, this is where the story goes for me. God, I, I hold on to this, if you don't mind. I, I'll have my allegiance to, you fill in the blank. What is your allegiance today? It's very easy. Look at your bank. Look at your, your statements. Look at your, your time spent. Look, where, look what rises your emotions at times. Look what happens when you go onto social media and you see something and all of a sudden stuff and starts to surface from the inside. Yeah? That's where your legions are. That's where your heart is today. So, elder brother, we may obey all the rules, but our real heart and our passion is something else. Our career, our making money, our children, our peer acceptance, our getting on in life. If anything is controlling position in your heart, if anything is more important than your, than your position and your relationship with God, that becomes a, a thing. That becomes a God, a small g God. That becomes a disordered love. People talk about the kingdom growing in their hearts. I just want the kingdom to grow in my heart. Do you want me to give you a fast track to the kingdom growing in your heart? Let me give it to you. Give your legion and your affection to God first and let everything be secondary and the kingdom of God will multiply and grow in your heart. Kid you not. You want to become a mature Christian? Don't quote me verses. Don't tell me you're mature by quoting scripture. Don't even tell me you're mature by how long you pray. Let me ask you, who is first priority in your life? Who's got the first choice? Who's got the first say? Who's got the first thought? Who's got the first love? It's not about your knowing, your knowledge, or anything else, or your good deeds. It's about who has your allegiance, who has your affection, who has your heart. Recognize these things for what they are. Do you see them? Do you recognize them? Here's the second part. This is what it means for us. It means that Jesus has done for us what the Father did for the Son. I know that sounds simple, but it's so true. You can hear the story time and time again. You get so afraid with it. Familiarity does breed contempt, unfortunately. When God came into the world, we would expect him to come in wrath. We would expect him to appear and drive us out with blows. They were expecting, the people of that time were expecting him to come with a spear and a sword. Instead, he came with the humble message of the kingdom of God, which was, a, a, again, a really radical political message. But he didn't come with a sword or blows. Instead, he came with nails in his hands, not a sword in his hand. Right? He didn't come to bring judgment, actually. He came to bear judgment. Ours. So when we see the absolute beauty of Jesus has done for us, guess what it does? Or guess what it should do? It should capture our hearts time and time again. Here's my prayer this morning as I finish up and as we engage in this exercise. My prayer is that this summer that Jesus would capture your heart again, that you'd fall in love with Jesus all over again. That he would actually radically just become the first love in your heart when you see what he's done for you. You know what it does? It makes the worst times bearable and the best times livable when you absolutely get consumed with Jesus. You don't need anything else. Seeing with the eye of faith, it only leads to a happy life, by the way, too. So you get what you need. Do you remember Philip said one time, he said, show us a father and that's enough for us? Have you ever heard him say that? Have you ever read him? If you have heard him, I'd probably worry, actually, because he's dead. But have you ever read that? Philip says, show us a father, that's enough. If you can do that, then that's enough for me. And do you remember what Jesus says? 
Anybody want to tell me what Jesus says? Yeah. If you see me, you see the Father. That's enough. So here's where we're going to finish. We're going to do an exercise in worship. I'm going to ask the guys to come up. I'll get down out of their way. So I need your full engagement, everybody, even at the back tables. Are you with me? Are you with me? Look at that there. Look at the core. Did you see that? I want to finish in an exercise of worship this morning. And I wanted to connect us with Jesus so he gets our allegiance and we fall in love with him and we get the true picture of him again and again so that it starts to smaller the disordered loves in our lives and it starts to revive the love of Christ in our lives. So here we go. Are you ready? 